are in the middle of a series where we're uh, talking about, or we've been talking about what it means to be a Jubilee people. And so we've been, we looked at uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, one of the stories about Jesus' life in the Gospel of Luke, where he's introduced as this person who comes and uh, he announces himself as the King of Jubilee, somebody who's bringing this hope of good news to the poor, of reconciliation, of uh, slaves freed. And so we've walked alongside of Jesus, and so does the early church. And so the second part, uh, Luke has a second book, which is called Acts. And we've been looking at the, the book of Acts, and it's about the early church who have also been watching Jesus. And then Jesus leaves, and so they, they wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and then the Holy Spirit does come, and they experience being drawn out into a bigger story in the world, from their small ethnic stories, from their fa- small familiar stories, into this bigger story, much like what Ray was talking about, that, that vision of resonance where we are invited into God's story. And the practices of this early church are listed in Acts 2. It's a very famous passage. And it talks about the different things that, that the early church did. So they would come together for fellowship. They would come together for singing. They would come together for teaching. A lot of the things that we're doing here on uh, Sunday morning. But one of the surprises to me in that passage, which we talked about last week, was the thing that's actually mentioned the most often in that section is that that community came together for table fellowship that they would gather together around a table. And we notice that there are three locations in which they did that. So it's represented by these three circles up here on the TV. The first one is the close circle. Uh, That's in the temple in in Acts 2, where they would come together at a specific time, at a specific gathering with the people of God uh, for uh, around the Lord's table, which is the close table. And it's what we're going to talk about today. The second table that they gathered around is is represented by the middle one, which is from house to house, it says. That they would gather together for meals around the tables in their homes, and this is the dotted circle. And then the third space that they would go to is out in the neighborhood, out in the world, which is represented here by the half circle. They would meet, you know, for us, we'd say in parks or in pubs or in coffee shops. For me, one of the spaces that's a, a half circle space in the world is my hockey locker room when I play hockey with my friends. And, and we noticed last week that there's an extension that happens from these three tables. And so it starts with this table here for the early church and for us. We gather around this table, and then we extend God's presence, or we learn to notice God's presence in those other spaces. We start here, and then it goes through our homes, and then it goes into the world. And we'll also notice, uh, when, we, when we talk about the other two spaces, that it works in reverse as well. That people, in general, like your friends who don't follow Jesus, your family, your neighbors, they're not just going to come into this space and participate at the the closed table. Rather, the way that it happens is we go and we meet them in the half circles of our lives. We invite them into our homes, and then we move to this table together. That's the way that, that that it goes. And that's why the shift that we're talking about in this season, as we continue to shift our church to what God's calling us to do, is that we're moving, we're saying, from relevance to resonance. And so the vision and for mission that we have is not that we make our Sunday gathering like super cool and super amazing and super tight. So we, we don't think that you're going to be saying to your neighbors and friends like, yo, have you heard their music? It's like better than going to watch Dua Lipa. Uh, you should come on Sunday. Or there are sermons, man. It's funnier than going to stand up. You should come in here. People like casually laugh very quietly. Or like the bread from their communion is better than matchstick. You should come try this unreal bread, right? Whatever it is that that you might think would draw people in here. That's not the vision of what we're trying to do. Now, we're trying to do all those things well. 
but we're actually going after something else. When we come to the table, what we're, we're, we're coming around is actually resonance. That the presence of God might be here with us. That the presence of God might be with you in your homes and that the presence of God is active and working in our world. It's a different kind of thing that we're, that we're doing. So we're shifting. So for the next four or five weeks, what we're going to be looking at is these tables in greater detail. And we're going to start with the close table today, with this close circle and what is often called the Lord's Supper. Now, there's many different passages that we could look at uh, in order to do that, but I want to go back to Luke uh, for us today. And we're going to slowly walk through a passage in the next two weeks. And this week, I just want us to notice three different things. If you're a note taker, here's what they are. The setting of the table. Where is this table happening? What is our place at the table? And then thirdly, what is Jesus' place at the table? So what's the setting? What's our place at the table? And then what's Jesus' place at the table? So Luke 22, if you have Bibles, you can open up there. Otherwise, everything will be up here on the screen for you. So Luke 22:14, 14, it says, When the hour came, Jesus reclined at the table with the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So the first thing I want you to notice is that this table that's highlighted here takes place within a larger story for Jesus, within the Passover story or the Passover meal. Now, Jesus is saying that this meal, this table that he's inviting us to, is part of this celebration. It comes within the story of the Israelite people, who every year would, would celebrate Passover in order to remember a very important time in their history, when God freed them as slaves and brought them up out of Egypt. And so this practice of Passover would help them to remember who they were as a people and then who they are who God was and what he'd done, and therefore what God could continue to do in their world, and the kind of relationship that they had with God, that he's a faithful God, as, as Ray said, or as, man, or sorry, as Meg prayed. God is faithful, and he will continue to take care of his people. We're in a covenant relationship with him, is the way that the Bible would say it. So Jesus, for Jesus, the close table, this table that we come to, is it, it's a setting within a story, within a larger story. And if, if that's the setting, a story, if that's true, then for me it actually brings a lot of clarity to the historical questions that people have had about what actually goes on here. And maybe the questions that you might have about what happens here. So if you're not familiar with the controversies and the questions about the Lord's table, let me just bore you for a few minutes, okay? About two to three minutes. It'll be quick. There are generally three big questions that are asked about this table. First of all, uh, what should we call it? The second is, how should we do it? And then third, like, what is actually happening? So, on the first question, what should we call it? There's many different names that this table is called. So some, of it, some people will call it a sacrament. Other people will call it communion. Some people call it the Eucharist, which just means thanksgiving. Uh, some people call it mass or the Lord's table or my personal favorite, which I found from study in the past few weeks, the love feast, which the early church called it. So just go ahead and take that one to work with you on Monday when you're like, well, what did you do on the weekend? Actually, I practice a love feast with my church community, and it extends actually to the tables in our cafeteria where we can have a love feast here today. And your coworkers might be like, you know, I'm just going to call HR just for a quick second, non-related to anything you said. Okay, so there's all these different names that you can have. The second is like, how do we actually do this? So should we have a full meal? Should we have real bread and real wine? Should we rip the bread and then drink out of the same cup? Or should we do what we do, which is practice, it's called intinction, where you rip the bread and then you dip it in the cup. Or we could go back to those wonderful cups that we've had over COVID. Everybody misses those, right? The nasty uh, cups with the styrofoam wafer. You guys all miss them. I know you do. Don't get your uh, weekly intake of styrofoam. Um, 
or the individual cups in silver trays. I still do not know how that happened, like in these kind of like silver trays, uh, which is very popular in my home church. And then should it be served by the priest? Or as I read again in research this week, one of my favorite names, it should be, it should be led, the uh, Lord's table should be led by the president of the brethren. That's what they called that person. And I was like, I can get down with that name. Uh, in fact, I've already changed my name on the website. That's my title now. Uh, or the leadership of the church, or is it the members who serve it, or do we just serve each other? And then the, finally, the question, which is maybe the most controversial, is like what actually happens? So there's transubstantiation, which means that the, the, the bread and the wine actually turn into Jesus' body and blood when the priest prays over the, the wine and the bread. Not me, I'm not, at, I'm not at that level of priest, but that's what some people will say happens. Then there's the Orthodox Church, which would believe that that happens, but they don't know when. It's a mystery about exactly when it becomes the blood and body of Christ. Or there's something called consubstantiation, which the Lutherans practice, which they say that this doesn't turn into the body and blood of Christ, but the body and blood of Christ is in and around, or around and under and near the blood or the wine and the bread. And then there's receptionism, which basically says that Jesus isn't physically present, but he's spiritually present. And then there's memorial view, which is what probably a lot of us know, which is that it's not actually about this. It's just a time to remember. We come and remember what Jesus has done. So there, that's parts over. If you blacked out, come on back. Okay, so there's been loads of ink spilled by people who are much smarter and much holier than me on these topics, advocating for one view or another. But in my very humble opinion, if Jesus is putting this in, in a story, then those kind of conversations miss the point. They miss the big overarching point of what Jesus is trying to do. He's saying actually what he wants us to inhabit when we come here is not a specific idea, but a story. And I'm not the only one who thinks this. Listen to someone who is much smarter and probably much holier than me. His name is Andrew McGowan from Yale University. The Eucharist, this, this table is a field of Christian practice characterized, much like the early church doctrine, by diversity and not a single idea represented in bread and wine. It presents rich and varied themes of memory, presence, celebration, and sacrifice, and there is no stronger theme than Thanksgiving, the Eucharista itself. To use any one idea, particularly the later prevalent emphasis on remembering the death of Christ, as the sole basis for interpretation of the early Eucharistic practice is apparently tempting, but ignores the real feast of meanings offered by this evidence. And there he's like, you thought I was just a professor, but I'm, I'm kind of clever too. Real feast of meanings here. Well, wink, wink. Um, okay, so what he's saying is basically the same thing I'm trying to say, which is that we should not reduce this table to a single idea or a soul representation. We have to do it one way, and so we do it in a certain way, but rather what we should be coming to every week is this real feast of meanings, a story that we're invited to. And I think this is tough for us to grasp, specifically as Western people, because we tend to overvalue the left part of our brain, which is the logical, orderly, linear, analytical part of our brain. And so when it comes to understanding something like this, a practice set within a story, what we do is we tend to chop it up. We tend to put it into a grid and reduce it. It's like we take all the different passages about communion in the Bible and we put them in a big pot with a little bit of water, we close the lid, and we try to boil it down to its smallest pieces. And to be fair, this practice of reducing things has been super helpful 
for us in the West. It's really good if you're dealing with machines. It's really good if you're dealing with science. It's really, really good for systems. So I'm not down on it in general, but it doesn't often serve us very well for meaning-making activities. It takes something really big and it makes us small. And, and specifically, it doesn't work well with story. Because the story doesn't work like that. It's not actually about reducing the world. A story is made to expand our world. You know, Jesus, when he teaches, he often uses parables. And one of the theologians that I've read about parables, he says basically what Jesus is saying is, imagine a world like this. Imagine a world like this. We follow Jesus around in Luke talking about Jubilee. And what, like Walter Brueggemann says, what he's trying to do is get us to dream a dream. That this kind of world is possible. It's a different, it's an expanding idea rather than something that's trying to reduce and break everything down. So when Jesus introduces this meal by putting it within a story, we might be missing something, actually, if we're trying to boil it down to its bare bones by asking very reductionistic questions. Like, where is Jesus in relation to the bread? Or, like, do the molecules of the wine actually change? These are real questions you may never have asked, but they've been asked throughout history, and very embarrassingly, people have been killed over differences on these questions. Because when we try to do this with something like story, or with something like a library of scripture, or with a person named Jesus, what often happens is that we reduce them only using our left brain, and then we end up in bounded set thinking, which is like, this is what we practice we are the right kinds of people. We practice the Lord's table like this, unlike those Catholics, unlike those Lutherans. And that's what ends up happening, is we split ourselves off. Rather than, I think, what, what um, Jesus is trying to do by inviting us to a story, which is to say, hey, come. Come inhabit a story. And if you look at the people Jesus invites around his table, they are different. They don't all think the same thing. An invitation to a story allows us to be centered. And, and furthermore, I think it allows us to experience resonance. We can come, and rather than alienation, which is what we might experience when we come to the table, you know, just another thing we do, kind of a dead world. This can actually be a space where we are restoried, and we actually experience the presence of God. Let me, let me give you a quick example to try to um, help understand this. Because to me, this is so fundamentally important about the difference between being in a story versus analytically like looking at something. And it's, the different, it's one of the key things you have to, to cross over if you're going to be a centered person. So let me try to give you an example. Imagine you and I uh, get the great and wonderful privilege of going to an Edmonton Oilers hockey game. Okay, at some point in time. So it's a regular season game. So if you, if you don't know anything, if you're, if you're new and you don't know who the Edmonton Oilers are, so they're a team from the next province over. They're a professional. Number, first thing, they're a professional hockey team from Edmonton. Number two is that you should know this, that anyone who knows anything about hockey would obviously cheer for this team. They're, it's just the clear-cut choice, okay? Um, so we go to a game, and the game is just okay. Uh, it's just an okay game. Oilers win. We all knew that they were going to win because they were playing the Canucks. No question there, right? Like, like they won like they did here or, or here or here. All of these, you know, we could go on, but we would just say, this is what happened. We all knew it was going to happen. It's the historical precedent, okay? So game's over. It's just a midseason game, so it doesn't really mean a whole lot. But we stand up to go, and to your great surprise, everyone in the building starts singing the song La Bamba. Okay, you guys know this song? La, 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 bamba. Right? We only know those words. You guys know the song, okay? Everyone, 20,000 people in the stadium stand up and start belting out this song. And you're like, you turn to me and you say like, John, what's going on here? Is it like Hispanic Heritage Month or something uh, in Edmonton? 
and I turn to you, and I've got deep emotion on my face and tears on my eyes, and I'm like, no, we're singing the song for Joey. And you're like, what is happening here? Like, this pastor who always comes and tells us that he has no emotions is just, like, belting this song out with all these other semi-drunk people around. Like, what is happening here? So, I could tell you the facts about what is going on at that moment in time. I could say to you, you know what? You know what's happening here? I'll just give you the facts. All the people here like the Oilers. All the people, or there's, there was a person named Joey, and he also liked the Oilers. So after the game, we sing La Bamba in the key of G, approximately eight seconds after the final whistle blows. And that's, what, that's what's going on. And all of that would be absolutely true. And it would allow you to join us in singing La Bamba. But it would probably be something completely devoid of any kind of resonance. You could join us, you could practice it, but you would be missing out on the whole story and not have resonance. If you want to have resonance with us, you, want, you have to understand the story. So, I grew up in northern Alberta, about two and a half hours away from um, Edmonton. And so, I grew up watching the Oilers and through their massive heyday, and I also, which means I also grew up watching this guy. His name is Joey Moss. Now, he's not a player. He was an equipment manager for the Oilers, and he had Down syndrome. And so uh, his story, we'd always see him when we would be watching games. He was part of the, the mythology of the Oilers, and therefore he is part of my story. Now, I never actually met this guy, but I want to introduce you to a few people who have and let them tell his story. So go ahead, Joel. There should be some sound. He's always smiling, joking around. He was just a, a ball of joy and, and happiness, and he passed that on all the time. A lot of us wanted to be like him because he affected everyone positively all the time, and everyone wanted to be around him. Whenever he was coming into a room, whenever he was in a room, entertaining people, or whenever he left a room, everybody was smiling. And there's not, not a lot of people that could, could do that. I really feel that he made uh, everyone in the room better person when they left that room. You know, Joey is uh, w one of the, the, the best uh, men I've ever had the chance to get to know. Joe Moss touched everyone in a very diverse way right across the country. More importantly, I think what he did best was he gave parents hope. Parents who had kids that are mentally challenged saw Joey Moss living a relatively normal life fitting into society and being accepted uh, as a, a regular person. And I think that gave parents of kids with handicaps uh, a great deal of hope. And I think that was the biggest thing that Joey Moss brought to his life uh, as far as helping other people. Once an oiler, always an oiler. He will always be remembered as that and a legend that will be, will be missed. So that, that was Joey Moss, and every Oilers game you would get to see a little vignette of him just usually passionately doing something. And uh, one of the things you may not have noticed as, as much through this video is that one of the things that he loved to do was sing the national anthem. He would always belt out the national anthem with such vigor and passion that Albertans, okay, 
who hate Justin Trudeau would just forget that hatred for two minutes and just sing with Joey. And so when he died, we lost a presence at the game. Like, this is something every Saturday night I would watch with my dad, and we would see Joey Moss. And so there's a presence at the game that was lost. There was a, uh, someone who, who wasn't there anymore. And so Oilers fans actually put together a petition to try to keep Joey present at the games and to keep his legacy around. And he loved to sing and dance, and supposedly whenever he would ask for a song to sing and dance to, he would ask for La Bamba, that he loved La Bamba. So when the Oilers win... Albertans, who don't speak a lick of Spanish, stand and sing as loud as they possibly can the only two words they know from the song of La Bamba, (laughs) which is La and Bamba. And I think there's other words. We don't know them, but we just stand and we belt it out. See, the truest sense of what's going on and the meaning of what we're doing actually doesn't come from the facts at all. But it comes from inviting you into the story of a team that gives people hope and gets us through the cold Alberta winters. And it it surrounds a guy named Joey, who is a guy that would be the easiest guy to look over, actually, at the games, to shrink into the background. But instead, his passion and his smile spoke to a world full of resonance. That's one of the things of people who have lost a sense of resonance in the world, that he always looked like the world was just full of magic. Every day, everywhere that he went. And so he made us believe. And most of us have never seen him, but we grew to know and love him, and he became part of our stories. And so when the Oilers, at the end, if the Oilers win, we sing with Joey, and we sing with others, and we experience something like resonance at these games. So if that can be true of a bunch of mildly inebriated Albertans cheering on an underperforming sports franchise... Imagine what could be true if our stories were intertwined with God's story. Imagine how we might sing. Imagine how we might give. Imagine how we might pray. If on a cold Alberta night, the presence of a guy with Down syndrome who was an equipment manager named Joey can help us sing a song in a language that we don't even know. Imagine what might happen and what resonance we might experience if we came around God's table and his presence was actually here at this table. What might change for us? So Jesus, the setting for him is the story. That's the first thing. And then Jesus says these words, verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat it again. I will not eat this meal again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and he gave thanks and he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So not only does the table take place within a story, but we are invited to find our place at the table within this story. Now, like I said, most of us are probably most influenced by the memorial's perspective, which basically says that when we come to the table, what we're most used to doing is to remember. Remember, if I asked you what, you'd probably say that Jesus has died for my sins or something like that. And if you were part of our community before the flood, which is a very ominous way to refer to anything, uh, but it's true, we used to have this black communion table. Everything was black, by the way. Black communion table, and it it was hand-stitched in cursive in remembrance of me. But uh, because it was hand-stitched in cursive, it always looked to me like it said, instead of remembrance, it said remembrance, like this. And so I was always like, is there beer up there today? I don't know what's going on. I apologize, uh, Liz, that may be a hard one to translate uh, for you. Okay, so one of the number, we do 100% come to the table, 
and we do have, uh, we do remember. That is 100% one of the things we do remember. We're not trying to boil it down to a single thing. Um, we are to look back at this Passover meal as Jesus' followers. And then we're also to look back at the meal that Jesus had with his disciples 2,000 years later. But very surprisingly, I think for a lot of us, what Jesus is also saying is that we're supposed to look forward as well to a meal that's coming. He says, I will not eat of this bread or drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And so we're to eat this meal, we're to come to this table with two stories in mind, with an eye on each. One to the past and one to the future. So some traditions say it this way, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This is called the memorial acclamation. And so it's reminding us that we live between these two epic moments of history, that Christ has come that he has died, that he has saved, and that he is risen, that he's reigning and ruling even now, and that he will come again. And we stand at our place at the table in the middle of these moments in history. That our moment in history is not the high water mark of history, is not the most important of history. It is laden with meaning, but it comes by living properly and standing properly in between these two great moments of history. And if we miss out on holding any of those plot points, We will get ourselves into deep, deep trouble because we'll forget that Christ has died. And so what we'll do is we'll try to look for someone or something else to save us. Maybe it's a political party. Maybe it's a certain group of people that we need to get rid of. If we could just get rid of of those people in our world, the world would just be awesome. It would be saved. Or maybe we'll go as people from this place and we'll feel the pressure to go and save the world. And we'll end up burning out. If we forget that Christ is risen, that he is reigning and ruling right now, then we will go and try to reign and rule. And we will use things like power and coercion, which are not the way of Jesus, to try to make everybody do what we want. If we forget that Jesus will come once again, then we will will take the pressure of being the hope of the world on ourselves. Or we'll go out in search of finding it somewhere else. You know, a, a, a few years ago, Um, A guy named Bill Hybels, who was a massive uh, Christian leader at the time, he used to always say, you know, the church, the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And we want to say with him, like, yeah, yeah. Especially people like church planners and pastors be like, yes, we are the hope of the world. And then you know what happened? Bill Hybels had a massive moral failure. Like many prominent leaders, unfortunately. And I just think this, look, if the church is the hope of the world, then this is what our neighbors think. There's probably no hope for the world in the church. I love this place. I love you guys. We are not the hope of the world. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. And what we get to do is we get to live within this story, pointing to him as the hope. To take our lives and pointing to him. So we live in this moment. We orient ourselves at this table to find our moment in the story and our moment in the world. And so we look with one eye backwards to the story that that Jesus came into and the meal that he had with his friends. And we learn to help our stomachs to growl for this future meal that we'll have with Jesus, when we'll sit with him at the table and we'll experience much better bread than here, even better bread possibly than matchstick, much better drink than this, and we'll sit with Jesus and we'll sit with one another and we'll fuel ourselves for the healing of the world, of working alongside King Jesus to bring hope and healing to this world. But we live also with our feet in this moment, not as the high watermark of history, but as people who are ready to serve, We'll talk about this more next week. And as a signpost to the story, that there is a different story, there is a true king that's reigning and ruling, and there is a hope. There is a story that we can find ourselves in. When we eat this meal, we learn, in other words, who we are 
by learning when we are. We learn who we are by learning when we are. All right, last section. Verse 19 says, Then Jesus took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Now, I just want you to just pause here. File those words away. Take, bless, break, and give. We will be coming back to these words again and again and again. So just file them away for now. So he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. And then he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There's that word again. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So the table takes place within a story. That's the setting. We are invited to the story to find our place But this section also teaches us that the table and this whole story actually centers around Jesus. That he is the center of it. Now, so much can be said here, but just for the sake of time, let me just say three things really quickly about this. The first thing is this. In this passage, Jesus is saying that he is present with us. At the table, Jesus is present with us. Listen to what N.T. Wright says in his great little book, The Meal Jesus Gave Us. The meaning of the strange phrase, do this in remembrance of me, doesn't just mean remembering Jesus and his death. We do not simply recall the events of Calvary with our minds and our hearts and faith and love and awe, although we certainly should do that every time we come to Jesus' table. It also means that somehow Jesus is present, that his one-off death is made contemporary with us, and that this unique past event rushes forward to accompany us on our journey. The table is the place where Jesus becomes present with us. Here we can learn from the traditions that actually do think that Jesus, the real presence, is here, that God's presence is very much with us um, in the cup and the bread. And they have a prayer, or many prayers, but they're called the epiclesis, which basically is a prayer of welcoming God's presence here with us and making us aware of God's presence with us. This week I prayed uh, an example of this prayer, which is one that I often pray for myself, of Psalm 46. I prayed this over our community. And if you're not on those emails and and, uh, that list, I'd love to just come chat, chat, chat with me after, and I'll put you on the list. But here's what Psalm 46 says. Cease striving. Those those two words are always just right away for me. That's my life. I'm always going, always striving. Cease striving. Stop. And know that I am God. That I will be exalted among the nations, exalted in the heavens. That's who God is. The Lord of hosts is with us. God is here. He is present. He is reigning and ruling so I can stop striving. And there's so many invitations like that for the presence of God when we come around this table. That God actually wants to be present with us when we come here. The second thing we can notice from this passage is that at the table, Jesus hosts us. Notice the words that Jesus uses, my body, my blood. Now, on one hand, I know this is deeply disturbing. Uh, to, it was to the first century people that heard this, and it also is to us. And so I don't want to just gloss over that. But what I want to focus on for today is that God not only invites us to the table, not only is he present with us, but he also hosts us by providing the meal that he provides the meal at great cost to himself with his body and with his blood that the God of the universe gives of himself so that we can have a meal to partake of. And he does it for us. That's what it says in this passage, that God gives of his body and his blood for us. So Jesus at this table is the host, and we come as the guests to receive this life-giving meal. And that's the invitation that I mentioned from Isaiah last week. Come, 
Come to the table. If you're hungry, if you are thirsty, come to the table and eat this food that you have not prepared for yourself, but receive it from the host of the world, or the host of the table, the, the Lord of the world. Come broken. Come with everything that you have and come to the table and receive as a guest. So Jesus is present. Jesus hosts us at the table. And finally, the invitation that I want to say as we move to this time of response is that Jesus also wants to partner with us. There's an invitation to come and partner with him. I think most of us, when we think of the bread and the cup, um, you, maybe we don't think about why is there bread and why is there wine at this table. And if you've ever asked this question, the first and easiest answer if it comes within a story, is to point to Passover. Oh, they had unleavened bread and wine, and that's why we now have bread and wine. And that's true. But if Jesus, the setting for the table is a story and not just one idea, then there's lots of threads that are coming through. So let's just pull on a different thread for a moment. If we start at the very beginning of God's story, the first way that we're introduced to God in the Bible is that he is a creator. And what he's doing is he's taking darkness, he's taking chaos, He's taking what's called the tohu wabohu, which is the wild and waste of the world, and things that are, that, are, that are just destructive and don't generate anything. And what he does is he creates. He makes something new from those. He makes light, and he makes forest, and he makes fruit, and he makes air, and he makes grain. All this raw material. And then God creates human beings. And he says to us, look, you're not gods, but you hold a very special place within my world that I want to partner with you in order to continue to create beautiful things. And so take all this raw stuff that I've made. Don't abuse it, steward it, but take it. And with, in partnership together, we will create something new. We will create culture, we will create new shalom that will bless the world. And so when we come to the table, what we don't have here is grain and grapes. What we have is bread and wine, which is the example of this partnership of God and people where we take grain and water and whatever else you use to make bread, I don't know, I'm not a baker, and we apply human ingenuity, and out comes bread, if you're a better cook than me. And we take grapes, and we take water, and we take a fermentation process that people have deduced over thousands of years, and we partner together with God, and we create wine, or dealcoholized wine, which is even another step of human ingenuity, <laughs> if you think about it. And that's the storyline that's, that's being highlighted here when we come to the table together. So Jesus, when he comes to sit at this table, darkness and chaos are just around the corner for him. He's about to get rolled under the darkness that is in people's hearts and the darkness that is just lurking within our world. And so he will die and his body will be broken, like the bread is broken. And his blood will be spilled, the life will be drained out from him. But Jesus is different than every other human who's ever existed and has failed to partner with God perfectly. Jesus is God's perfect partner. He is, in fact, the God-man. And so the darkness and chaos that rushes over Jesus' life, God will use once again to create new life. This is who God is. He's a creator. He's always creating. And so he can take something putrid and disgusting, something that is just made to destroy, and he can turn it into something beautiful. He can take the death of an innocent king and he can make it into a meal for you and for I. And so now we come on the other side of that story where Jesus once again hosts us at the table. And that means that there's an invitation for every single one of us to come with the brokenness in our own lives to King Jesus who had that brokenness in his, who's experienced the darkness. And he says to us, come, come to the table. 
Come to the table and let me make something beautiful of your life. Let me take this darkness. Let me take the areas that are not generative, that are dying, and let's make something beautiful. Let's partner together once again. And many of us look out in the world and we see a world of darkness as well. And this meal reminds us that no matter how broken things are in our lives, no matter how broken things are in our families, no matter how broken things are in our city and in our world, that there is hope. Because our God can take something disgusting and he can make it something beautiful as he invites us to the table. That he can take darkness and resurrect it into light. That there's hope for each one of us and for all of us at the table in the hands of our powerful and creative God. And it's also an invitation for all of us to re-engage in this partnership that God has wanted since the very beginning of his story. That he says, out there and in here, there are many raw materials that I've given you, many things that I've created, and I long to partner with you to make shalom. And so in our families, in our homes, in our friendships, in our work, in our parenting, this is the invitation of the table. It's to come and not let grain be grain, but to partner together with God to make it bread. Take the raw materials of our world and use our God-given skills, abilities, and talents to continue to create shalom in the world, to open the story that other people might see and we might point to our good and wonderful God by extending his table out into the world. Let's pray to close. Father, we thank you for this invitation to the table. As we come now, would we enter into your story? For those of us here who don't know your story very well, maybe we don't experience resonance at the table, but what we often experience is confusion and alienation, or maybe even pressure, pressure to come forward. So I pray that you would uh, relieve us of that pressure today and instead hear your invitation, not only to come, but to hear your story. Many of us bring our moments of time as the most important moment. I pray that in this time that we have together that you would restory us into the great moment that we stand in history between your life, death, resurrection, and then the future hope that we have when we sit with you at the table. And finally, we pray that this would be a time where we put you at the center. So we invite you to be present to us. We invite you to minister to us. We ask that you teach us to stop striving and instead to come and see that you are here, the Lord of hosts, that you are reigning and ruling, that you are good, that you long to be among us. So we ask you to come in this time and pray that you would make yourself known as we take together the bread and the wine. We pray these things together in Christ's name. Amen.